Good afternoon and uh, welcome everybody to this Sunday sessions of 24th of January 2021 and there's a bit of snow here. Hello to you all. Well, welcome everybody to this Sunday sessions where I'm playing around with a bit of tech issues, but we'll get going. And thank you for joining me. Uh, as usual, this is our weekly time of exploring nature center folklore, connecting this within your favorite sanctuary space and expressing inspired visions from your sanctuary through your poetry, writing, art, crafts, performing, and any problem solving. Excuse me. Now, today's Sunday session is going to focus on one of our OM subjects. And this one is the OM Iona Scribe story. And there's a bunch of scribes for you. Get the pictures going for you. Uh, now, uh, the, when the Gales met the Picts, uh, say I've still got this tech issue, uh, so we'll get around it. When the uh, Gales met the Picts and the scribes, use their language, the combination. Uh, this is what I'm going to be talking about, because when we talk of folklore, even when we talk of history, this is going to be a little bit of history today. Uh, we tend to think in terms of the boundaries that we got now. There's England, there's Scotland, there's Wales, and there's Ireland, there's Northern Ireland. And we tend to think of those as being existing for thousands of years, which, of course, they weren't. It was very different, even uh, 1500 AD, and especially before 1100 AD. So I think we've really got to take the nationalism out of this to understand how this flows. And this is very important with this OM that I'm going to be talking about today. Now, my first connection with the OM symbols was during the 50s, before I was a teen and I was a wee lad. And then again, so much through the 60s as a teen, I dabbled with OM divination uh, in a toy-like way. And it was not until I met my stonemason boss on Iona, his name's Atty McKechnie, and this was during the 70s. And this was when I learned a deeper story of the OM language. And I've been passionate about it ever since. Now, if I can uh, get onto this... Uh, there's uh, Iona, just in case you hadn't uh, realized. Come on up. Uh, there's Iona. And Atty was a, a mason apprentice during the 30s when the Iona Abbey was being restored. And he was a very fluent Gaelic speaker and extremely passionate about the language and its origins. And this was what Iona was like. This was like it, this in the 30s when Atty started working there as an apprentice. And that he had a huge passionate interest in the way that the early medieval scribes used and changed the old Scottish language because he loved the language so much. And it was through him that I learned the tree language connections and how they found a system of scribing uh, from the Orm. And quite amazing for me was to connect the Orm on a Scottish pilgrimage island that hosts very few trees. There's a few hawthorn trees, a few small hazel trees, and a few imported beech trees. And there's uh, the sort of village avenue, and you see a, a few trees there. 
and that's typical of my own and around the parish church. I haven't got any pictures of that, but the parish church has the beech trees. Now, during uh, this Sunday session, I'm going to tell you more of uh, the vision, the version of the Gales bringing the tree language to land that is, they called, or what was called, Aragale, Argyle. And uh, again, I'll remind you, uh, if I'm going to get the banners up for this. Sorry about this. I'm very slow at the uh, clicking forward because uh, there is something going on. I'm, maybe I'm not getting a very good signal. Let's see if I can get this up for you. I'm not getting the pictures and the banners up as quickly as I would like. So excuse me for that. And uh, move forward with that. Uh, and again, I'm waiting for a few seconds for the the uh, transition. Here we go. Uh, transition, please. <laughs> uh, hello, we've had that picture. <laughs> Come on. Um, right, here we go. I, I'm going to move on forward here. And I'm going to talk about what happened when they met the farming picks and the rune style. You know, the Gales had the tree language. And they met the farming picks who had their rune style blade cut stone, just like that. That's typical of a pick stone and those symbols, and how the two tribes forged a language so that they could speak to each other. Now, this is how the early medieval scribes attempted to unravel this in a linear way, which must have been a hell of a job you've got. You've got the arm, as you're familiar, goes from the bottom to the top, and you, you saw there a bit of the pick style of uh, communication. How do you put that into, describe that into a linear scale, uh, style? Anyway, uh, and what they did, uh, the scribes, they actually preserved some of the roots of this combination to create what we know as the Gaelic, the Gaelic uh, language. There's still, of course, among a lot of people today. Now, today, I don't have any guests uh, so far, but if you would like to chat about this subject live, as a paddle member uh, later, please use a link. I've already posted it, and uh, I'll say hello to you to the back in the backstage here. All you have to do is click that link on a previous comment of mine, and you can come backstage. Just follow it all. Uh, I'll bring the link up with the banners if I can get it through. Uh, beat the sluggishness here. Uh, I should have a a banner thing here. That's the one to go to. Go there if you'd like to join me later to discuss the stuff that I'm going to be talking about over the next half hour or so. So that's uh, that. Uh, let's see who we got here. Let's see if I can get this up. I hope this is not sluggish. Uh, yes, it is sluggish as well. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, we've got Marcella. Good to see you. Uh, hugely appreciated. Thank you very much. Uh, like the sessions. This is going to be a bit different. Oh, it's interesting so far. Thanks very much with snowy Wisconsin, and this is snowy County Sligo. We got a bit of extra today. I, I haven't got a camera to take you out to that, but uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, I will proceed with this. And uh, good morning to the snowy, uh, snowy. Uh, again, I've got sluggish banners here, uh, moving along a little slower than I would like. The transitions. Uh, very sh slow today, um, and uh, I think it might be the service itself. Let's see. Uh, I hope I hope the sound is all right. I hope I'm clear enough. Everything's working from this end uh, fine. Anyway, 
A scale and pig merging story is quite complex to explain. I've been wrecking my mind uh, during the last week. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not only tech problems, is it? Um, bringing back the memories, I talked about Auntie McKechnie. Yeah, this evolution of the gales meeting the picks seems to be quite natural when you really look at it. I, as you know, I do folklore here rather than archive history. But this week I'm going to be sharing some watered-down archive history along with a bit of the folklore. Now, on Sunday sessions, I've often, often spoken about the gales bringing the a tree language to Erin, to what we know as Ireland now, and then on to the Era Gael, uh, which if you say quickly, you come up with the Argyle in Scotland. So excuse me, with, I'm going to have some duplication with some of the points that I've uh, shared with you in pre, uh, Sunday sessions so far. Uh, so I'm going to share a bit and intertwine it with other stuff uh, this afternoon. And uh, I'm actually going to be doing a tree language uh, Ogham session, Ogham session, uh, I think it's the end of next month. Uh, February is going to be very water-based, but there, we will have a tree base because we're going to have a tree march, the session on tree matters. So it's a nice transition between the two. But the Ogham was not the only alphabet that uh, started with trees. And perhaps I should reword that too, because it seems many languages were actually born from trees. Now, there's one profound act of nature that seems to give us clues to this, though it may be a storyteller's convenience or coincidence. And that is uh, when lightning, uh, again, let's get this up, uh, when lightning hits a tree. Uh, this is quite a round tree, but often you see the trees and you look above and they take on a bit of a tree T-shape. T for tree, T-shape, and these days we use words like thunder and Thor and Thursday. Uh, as I say, maybe pure coincidence. But there seems to be no Gaelic words, no Gaelic words uh, for Thor and thunder. And Thursday is Durin, something like that. You perhaps a uh, Durin. Uh, you may be able to correct me on that one. Now it looks as if it started with creating impressions of trees, maybe with sticks or sharp stones, and making impressions with tree material in clay. And this is a modern thing, but gives you the example of the sort of thing I'm looking at. And another example, nice coincidence, transitions, come on. Another nice uh, coincidence is how we talk of ourselves, our ancestry and our languages as having roots and branches. I don't know if you, how much of that you can actually see, but this is someone trying to explain the spit-up of languages uh, using a tree. I think that's pretty neat uh, for that. So uh, let's see how we're getting on so far. Come on, let's release that. We've got a few people commenting uh, that's arriving. There's Catherine, uh, uh, someone calling someone else on, Jeremy. Uh, watching from Coal Island, Tyrone, lovely, because uh, there's some stuff that uh, I'm going to be including that involves the North. Claire's here, lovely. She's uh, either outside or in another room here. And uh is saying it's perfectly sound. And then we got uh, Donna in New Mexico, lovely to have you again. And uh, hi from Leash. Uh, so... Great, lovely to have you on board. And now I really get into the 
the roots of this story, I suppose you might say. Now, the pigs, they did have a scribed language, and it was a bit like runes. This is a modern runes thing, but if you, you know about runes, I, I would say, and that gives you a reminder of the sort of thing that I'm talking about. And this was a, a language of the pigs, because we're not, as I'll be explaining, the pigs weren't just one race. They were like an alliance of uh, several tribes that came together, and I'll explain why uh, very shortly. So this is why that is fascinating, why their written history is very unclear, so it's very much in the laps of storytellers. Uh, now, who are these pigs? Anyway, as I say, they're a mystery. It's a mystery that's going to be debated forever. It's a real shaggy dog, dog story. Uh, but the Gales, they learned to write and archive their stories somehow, and so did the Saxons. So when the Gales, they had their stories, they got into a linear form. The Saxons, they learned how to write their stories into linear form. And, of course, the Romans did, because a lot of the folklore, even a lot of the pagan rites, refer to Roman linear writings because that's what they did. But the Picts, they never got to the linear writing. They just, uh, they got stuck on this stuff uh, that we got uh, here. Um, come back. There we go. That's typical of the Picts. And I'll give you another one here. Uh, that's the drawing of it. This is the Bacardi stone. It's in Aberdeenshire. And it's made clearer by that diagram there. So that's about as far as the pigs, which makes them mysterious, makes them legendary. And uh, they have uh, some signs here. This is the Brunsbutt stone uh, that's in Aberdeenshire. It's fascinating black and white to bring out the relief on that stone. You'll see typical pig stuff there. But look down the left. There's symbols that look like Orm. And it's very unclear whether it was the pigs who actually carved out the Orm with their blades there or whether some gales came along and did that, or whether the pigs learned from the gales about Oum, and they used their own axes uh, to carve out something like that. But anyway, there you go. Emerging on the stone of uh, the pig symbolism, along with something that look, either looks like Oum or something they learned of the Oum. So the starting point of the uh, pig story, as I say, it's a shaggy dog story, uh, because uh, there was never a tribe called the pigs. It, as there was never a tribe called the Celts and never a tribe called the Negroes. It's just convenient words that we use to group a bunch of people together, a bunch of uh, tribes, sometimes races. And Picts is our convenient word to describe a bunch of tribes that came together. And they formed an alliance. And the reason for this alliance, it seems, was to defend themselves and be at a position where they could battle against enemy groups that were larger than in any of their individual tribes. Now, there, the Romans, they called this um, alliance, this tribe alliance, the Picti, um, the painted ones, which is the way they're translated. And uh, there we go. There's some painted ones there. Uh, that gives you a, a sort of an idea. And perhaps a more popular interpretation of Picts is from the Latin word pact. And this is one I think that historians use more than anything. And that means worshippers of ancestors, or they were born from ancestors of the land, because on what's now, we call uh, the UK or the mainland Britain, 
people have been around since way before megalithic times, as they have in Ireland. And so any invasions, any people like the Saxons when they came over, the Romans, they saw these people that were ancestors of the land. So they were the pecked. So that was one of the names that somehow uh, got uh, picked up. Um, Peg's not actually uh, uh, of uh, Latin origin, actually. Uh, it's as if the Romans picked that word up from the Norse somehow, because the Norse had the word petter. And uh, the ancient Britons themselves, and I'll talk about the difference between the Picts and the Bretons. Uh, this is Petus. I think I've got something up I can give you, uh, which gives you the different uh, spellings. See if that helps you out with what I'm trying to explain here. So there's that there. Now, the meaning of the alliance name of themselves, um, they actually name, excuse me, <clears throat> they actually name themselves the Pict or the Pict, it seems, according to the Romans, whereas the Celts, the Romans actually called the Celts the Keltoi. Very different. So I think that's interesting that uh, you would actually get this alliance that was of uh, what's now Scotland, I suppose you would say, and they would say they would actually say, "Oh, we're the, oh, uh, we're the pact or whatever it is." Whereas the Romans say, "You're the Celtai," and you wouldn't get Celtic or Celtai people say, uh, "Well, we're the Celtai," because it was actually putting them down a bit. But now people celebrate that. But the uh, the Pictai alliance of small tribes to create a larger defense. In order to be able to be an alliance, it looks like they shared some kind of language. They had to. The tribes might have had different languages like the uh, Aborigines in Australia. They, there's something like over 800 Aborigine uh, languages. So in order to communicate with your neighbors, they had to learn a unifying language. So there was somehow a shared language. And their language and cultural development seems to have traveled Historians seem to think, well, it started in Brittany. It went up through Britain and went up into what is now Scotland. And the language connections of the Picts have been linked to the Welsh, the Cornish, and the Bretons. But there's another thread of research and learning. Uh, if I can get uh, the picture up for you again. Uh, the... Uh, Now, we go to Orkney for this one, uh, and it supports the idea that the people we call Picts today started their population and their culture on the Orkney Isles. And this is the wonderful Scarabray. Anybody been there? Absolutely fabulous. That uh, um, It was a sand dune that got uncovered. And there they've got all this stone furniture, and it's all in place as if People just got out and left as San June came over and, and there it all was, including cooking utensils, all kinds of things that are now in a museum because they get lots of visitors and they would just disappear otherwise. But how they got to the, how these people that we call the pigs got to the Orkneys is kind of unknown. And the theories are that they're a combination of Norse, Germanic, and even Scythian traders. There's an illustration of Scythian traders. Um, and this is a sort of flow of the direction they went. And that's a bit confusing because this is looking at the idea of, okay, up through Brittany and uh, then up from the south to the north, whereas there's this uh, new way of thinking saying somehow 
they crossed over to what Denmark uh, and to Sweden, Norway, and came across and from the Orkneys and down. And there's another Scythian story, and I'll probably share that with you with the uh, tree language. Uh, or they said the Scythians actually came up uh, into the south of Ireland and moved up there. But of course, you were saying Scythian, they're going to be a, an alliance of different uh, tribes as well. So that's going to be split up. And this is what happened in ancient times. We try and group a bunch of people together as a singular culture. But really, that culture splits up and becomes something else. And I'm going to be saying that with the Britons and the Picts, once the same culture split up. Now, from the Orkneys, uh, it seems like they quickly got to Caithness. And this was during the megalithic uh, years, the Stone Age years. And uh, they went right through Britain, as we know today, and then on to Brittany. And uh, there's a bit of a map here. Doesn't really explain it that well. Come on up, map. There you go. Oh, disappeared again. There we go. It's a, someone's tried to simplify it there, and they brought in the Dow Rider. Uh, they got the pigs, they got the Britons there on the west, and the Angles, the Anglo Saxons on the east there. This is quite a later map uh, because that red part would have been uh, the whole part of what's uh, England now. And the pigs blue would have actually come down a lot further. And in fact, they may have been in the west and going down onto Brittany. Uh, there, anyways, just gives a rough idea. Now, I will be bringing it up. It says Ireland, but uh, what became Scotland from the Picts, it was actually adopting the name at this time where it's got Picts. That should actually say uh, Scotia instead of Ireland because that was a common name, or Erin, uh, but a lot of people say that. Anyway, move on from that. Uh, and, uh, the Romans and the Saxons may well have pushed their culture as I say, far west uh, of Cumbria, Wales, and now I've lost it. I, I've, I've missed the picture. Never mind. So when it said that the uh, pig spoke Welsh, it may be that the Welsh, Cornish, and Bretons spoke pig. If they started in Orkney and came through Caithness, uh, came down, it may be that their language actually the unified language as the alliance came south as well. Because uh, a lot of people say, oh, the Picts, they spoke Welsh. I'm starting to think by this new thought. It's the Welsh. They're actually speaking Pict. And the Bretons are speaking Pict. The Cornish, though the, not many people, hardly anybody talks Cornish now, they're speaking Pict. They're all, all part of this alliance. Even the Bretons might have been speaking Pict. Uh, all similar so, and very different to this language of the trees that came up through Ireland, the Gaelic language, the Gaelic language, which is from the people of the trees, and that came into Aragael. And it's lovely to imagine these transitions. Now, the timeline of this seems to be from about 8000 BC around to 1000 AD. So this is a, a huge transition of thousands of years of uh, this integration of the Gales, the Picts, and even by 1000 AD, this was Vikings as well. So they all kind of melted together, but still under the Pict name. Uh, and the Pict name probably existed from about 500 BC until they became integrated in with the Gales before 1100. However, there's several things. We, in Ireland, we have the two of the Donald stories. And to me, they're very Pictish as well. Maybe at another time I'll talk about this because the, there's a lot of 
folklore in Scotland and say, out of the two of the Donan, not of Irish, it's our Picts that went over, and they were the two of the Donan uh, because they were farmers. It was the links with the farming. They arrived in Orkney. Orkney was actually wooded, and they actually took the trees away from Orkney. Uh, trees are now coming back to Orkney, believe it or not. Uh, about 10, 15 years ago, people started doing woodlands. They're doing great uh, of native trees. So there were trees in Orkney, but they took them down. They did their farming. Why Orkney and not straight to Caithness? I have no idea. We'll probably hear about that from discoveries later on. Anyway, another time to talk about that. Of interest to us, uh, this is an Orm subject, uh, is there preserved rune-type language, and this is seen all over eastern Scotland, uh, Caithness, Shetland as well, Shetland and Orkney, we can see evidence of this. So it always, uh, what remains goes down the very much the eastern part of Scotland. If you've travelled there, if you go to Orkney and Shetland, not Shetland, if you go to Orkney and Caithness, and you go down the east, there's a whole different feel to the rest of Scotland, even today. Uh, you go to Black Isle, you go to the little town of Cromarty, you go over to Moray, you go into Aberdeenshire, there's this whole feel of ancientness, I feel, that is very different. When you go to the west, it feels very Gaelic, it feels very Gaelic, and uh, it feels very much like uh, when you're in Ireland, I think, and you've got the weather that's similar as well. And there is that whole world, that Celtic world that you feel. But I feel when you go down the east of Scotland, it's something very different. It feels like ancient farming is what is at root there. I'd, I'd feel that anyway when I go down there. Maybe that's all part of when I talked about divination. Uh, but uh, if I can, yeah, I caught up with you. The ancient language experts seem to link with Welsh, Cornish and Breton language. Uh, that's what I think we're talking about. Now, cutting these stones, I better talk about that. Using iron blades to cut the letters. And we can see roughly from the orm, and we can see this from other uh, stones that we'll see probably through the session, the letters that we use like K, W, V, X, Y, Z, Z, you know, they're all, you know, they're all straight lines that you can do with a blade. And these are letters that we do find uh, in the Breton, Cornish, Welsh languages. They're full of these. But you go over to uh, the Gaelic, Gaelic languages, everything is circular with the O's and the C's. It's very much part of the whole spiral circular thinking. So maybe that's something to do with a different feel as I say, from the east of Scotland, because you're into the area where there was this crisscross alphabet that had appeared in relation to the Gales more circular and spiral. It's a feeling thing that uh, I'm talking about, uh, really, there. Anyway, let's see what you're saying about this so far. Take a little break from that. Uh, Ina is uh, a lot of people referring other people to come and have a look at this. And as I say, I'm going trying to go very academic here, which is very unusual <laughs> for me. I uh, love to see you back, Big Bear, uh, a YouTube follower. Fantastic. Margie uh, is here. Uh, so people are still coming along and saying hello. So 
I love this. Thank you uh, very much uh, for joining in. Uh, I'm always humbled by uh, your interest. So let's go into how on earth did the Picts and the Gales come together? The Picts were settled farming people, as I've kind of been explaining in a sort of very, very way of traveling down the, uh, the east there. And uh, even some of their symbols, very much into the cattle. Uh, you hear about the, that's another uh, clue, I think, when you talk about the Tour de Nanon and their tales uh, in Ireland, there's always cows, isn't there? There's always a cattle story. Uh, you've, uh, <laughs> I suppose the most famous one is the Torn, but they traded with cattle. Cattle was their collateral. Cattle, how many cows they had, and it was all for milking, it was very much their wealth, their status. Uh, it was all about cattle, and so it was with the pigs, very much cattle people, animal people, which with the tree people as such, that when the uh, um, Malaysians came, for instance, and all those tribes at that time, cattle wasn't such a big thing with them. It was Breton laws. It was all about relationship with the trees. So we got this difference, and here it is on the pig stones where they have uh, the, the cattle. So that's one uh, thing. And then later the gales moved in from the forest, and they, be, they came out of the forest and became a, they learned how to be farming people too, uh, because that's how they were guided. And uh, they say about the Tour de Donan from the underground helped them to understand the farming ways. But funnily enough, the Tour de Donan started bringing trees up. So the thing has got switched apart a bit there. But there, the, uh, with farming, as we know, uh, it meant the need to embed farming tools you, and to make the farming easier, more productive. But uh, as people were more nourished, the populations grew. So interesting land grew as well. And the increasing population needed more land to feed them, the usual stuff of the human situation. Uh, so it looks like uh, they got to a point where they invaded uh, the Britain tribes. The, the, uh, as I say, over time, it looks like the people that were the, the alliance of the Picts broke away and there was an alliance of the Britons. Uh, similar like in Ireland, there was the breakup of the Northern O'Neills and the Southern O'Neills. And we've still got that situation of tension. We've got um, Ben Baldwin in County Sligo, and it's almost as if very much to the north of that, it's still very much the heritage of the Northern O'Neills. And to the south, although the Northern O'Neills really were Sligo and uh, Roscommon and Mayo, but there's always... There's never been a united island, I suppose that's what I'm trying to say, because there's always been that split between the northern O'Neills that started in the southern O'Neills. Likewise, you've got the Picts that were at the top and then the alliance of the Bretons below. And then that's never really come back together again since either. Um, so as I say, I think they were all part of the Picts alliance originally, but got this split. So some stories tell of the Bretons calling on the Romans and saying, look, we're being invaded by this alliance of Picts, and uh, we, we're having a problem against this because the Bretons' culture changed. The Bretons, as well as farming, got into city building. Um, and so when you've got cities, that's where population goes. So 
when uh, another tribe or, uh, comes to invade, what do they do? They hit the cities. And that gets the mass of the population, and that's how you convert people, I suppose, and how you actually conquer a country. But not with the Picts. They kept their little villages. They kept their little units. And um, I think this was a Gale influence. Uh, and whenever there was a battle, they would head for the trees. They would split up. And then they would come flying back out again. And uh, for people who were used to battling people with cities, that was very difficult. Different. So there were the city-building Bretons having a real problem with the pigs. So instead of the Romans invading, there's now thought that they actually invited the Romans to come over and form some alliance so they can invade uh, the pigs who were trying to grab land from them because of their own expansion. But of course, the Romans took over the Britons, drove them into the hills, drove the Britons into Wales, into Cornwall. So it didn't really work out too well for them. Uh, and maybe once they hit Wales and Cornwall, they became pigs, uh, their old heritage again. But what seems to be unique, as I say, is this clustering into large towns that we call cities. Uh, now, um, pigs and girls, the way I've told you there, what it reminds me of, well, as I was thinking about that yesterday, I was thinking, Goodness me, what is it? Robin Hood, isn't it? Very much like Robin Hood. Uh, there was uh, the Normans conquering the Saxons, and some of the Saxons had their land taken away from them, and it drove them into the woods, into the forests. And what did they do? They kind of reorganized themselves. Boom, they'd come out. Any passerby, they would rob them. And this is how I think it was uh, with the Picts and the Bretons. This was the sort of behavior they come out of the trees, boom, and uh, that's uh, that's how the cultures combated each other. You might be saying, what's this got to do with Owen? I'm getting to that. But even today, we can see this culture this uh, in the psyche of people, the way that people retreat into their, their woodlands, into their small units. They regroup and they come out more powerful than uh, perhaps the city people. We have this urban, rural divide even now. But the Scottish people, especially in the Highlands and Islands, uh, the one thing out of this by being in small groups, small villages, in the way that they did, is they were very good, not only in making alliances, but forming corps. And I, I've brought in some uh, posters with this. Um, these are old posters. And this is still a natural thing in Scotland, uh, on the islands, in the Highlands. They still form cooperatives because they they don't have big towns or big cities. They're still in little villages, in little groups, and they cooperate together. And I often wish, you know, that this was more worldwide because this works very well for conservation and efficiency as well. Uh, so I'm being political now, but it's, uh, well, that's something else I'm coming. There's another cooperative, uh, the global history, the tea, they're tea cooperatives. Uh, but... Uh, when you get, say, like the Breton lifestyle, the urban lifestyle, the culture seems to be more on expanding businesses, expanding corporations, and of course, we're always complaining about the inefficiencies of this and the effects on our environment. Uh, so uh, this is why I was saying, you take history and folklore, how can you listen and learn by this? How can you apply that today? Well, this is how it was then, 
this is how it is now. Is there something we can actually learn by this ancient wisdom? I think that's what I'm trying to present today, really. But as ancients, the Gales and, uh, and uh, the Picts especially, they actually did live as very peaceful farming people. Uh, they weren't as warlike as the storytellers and the historians would love to talk, talk about. They had lovely, the way they organized themselves was with council mediation methods. And that was the way they smoothed conflicts. And it was very much in Irish folklore, I'll share this on the Sunday sessions, of the way the council, using the Brehan laws, for instance, uh, can have mediations and they can mediations creates the balance and that gets rid of any conflict. But as the tribe populations grew into the larger tribes that formed the towns, the cities, to me, that's where tension grew. Um, they didn't seem to form alliances in the same way. I was, it suddenly became about acquisitions, I think. A very different way of going about it. So, the natural methods of the Picts of being small and in groups and in council to decide things and being peaceful. This was not easily handled by the empiring Romans. Romans were there to build empires. The Picts certainly were. They were there to build alliances. It's as almost as if they were there to build small drum circles. They weren't there to to kind of take over everything. They just wanted to shelter and to be fed. Uh, they were socialists, weren't they? Um, so when the Romans attempted to attack the Picts in the open, as I say, the Picts later in alliance with the Gaels retreated, went into the woods, regrouped, came out, attacked the Romans, and the Romans just could not conquer them by the methods they used. So the best they could do was build Hadrian's Wall. And uh, I've got some Hadrian's Wall uh, pictures here. Let's go with that. There you go. There's another one. And it's uh, amazing walks, as you can see from there. And uh, there's the kind of the map. There's some sort of map or away from near Newcastle over into Cumbria. That red line is where the Hadrian Wall. And the idea was uh, they're fed up with the pigs. They wanted to keep the pigs out. And this was more symbolic. If the pigs wanted to, they could just jump over it, no problem. But there was this symbolic, please, we've had enough. Romans say, we've had enough. Just go back to your farming. We're not going to invade you. We don't want you anymore. As obviously, you're not, your culture is not going to be part of our empire. It couldn't be. So that's, I think, what was symbolic uh, of the Hadrian's Wall. And what I find interesting about the pig stones, and here's one here, um, where we can gather some own uh, symbolism. In any of these pick stones, uh, if you go to Aberdeenshire, Moray, up through Caithness, Orkney, the one thing that's not depicted on the pick stones is battles. It seems as if these symbols have something to do with seasons and their farming ways, uh, which I think is lovely. And that was, you know, that's their language. Um, and it seems that their language kind of expressed and indicated farming, I'm trying to get some more up here, their farming and peaceful life. And their farming and peaceful life really wasn't intruded on that often. <coughs> but the arrival of Christianity amongst the pigs, that seemed to really change things. 
quite horrifically. There's a pig, uh, Christianity pig stone there. And it seems, uh, in short, what happened was, is that uh, what Roman warriorism, warriorism couldn't achieve, Christianity seemed to move in to the pig lifestyle, and they managed to convert them rather than war with them. But the pig lifestyle was similar to what we relate to and interpret as pagan lifestyle. This is what they were trying to convert. Men and women, for instance, we hear this in Ireland, but it was definitely true amongst the pigs, even amongst the Bretons. The men and women were both equals, and both, both of them worked on the farms. There's an illustration of some painted equals. And the men, though, when it came to defense and warriorism, it seems that the men were very much ahead on that. But it didn't mean they were leaders as such. It was still very much equality because most of their culture was the farm and the seasons. And their beliefs guide their ways of living. Like in Ireland, as we tell, was centered by a mother and earth goddess. And with the girls, that goddess and the she seemed to be through uh, a center elder tree. There was the billet tree, and there's a sort of goddess wandering around the tree. So you got the girls, their goddess was in the trees, but with the picks was on the land, uh, and very much in the mountains with what we call the kayak, the kayak, uh, the woman of her womb in the hills, uh, such as uh, here uh, in Scotland, and the mountains, and water flowing out of springs, wells, and pools uh, from those mountains. I've got a couple of pictures if they'll come up. There you go. It's very slow again. Uh, so there's this reverence for this water coming out of the mountains as coming out of the womb of the kayak, the kayak. And even here, this is on actually on the, um, this is above kayak, uh, County Sligo. And you're looking down on Loch Gill here. This is over the, um, oh God, I've gone brain dead thinking the name of the hills. The kind of red hills are above. And there are these uh, sacred pools there that it was believed that the spirits of the leaders would join the womb of the kayak in the hill there. Uh, someone will tell me we've got Ina. Catch me up on that one. I've just gone brain dead on the name of this uh, wee little lock here uh, and the name of the uh, hills there. Sorry that I've gone a bit cloudy on that, but Ina might be able to rescue me on that if she's still watching. Uh, and with pigs uh, like Gales, it seems the lines of leadership, though, they weren't today with Patrick. Uh, oh. Get my pronunciations done. Patriarchal waves. With the pigs, the maternal line was where leadership came from. The dynasty was not patriarchal uh, like we follow today. And life and heritage to them always started from the womb. The womb of the person, the womb of the earth. That's where it started. And even though the appointed leaders were men, it was still regarded as everybody being umbilically connected to the kayak in the earth. And men, they would actually counsel women, the spirit women, to be their guides. And I think I've got an illustration of that here uh, as an artist's impression of a woman guide. And it's also important uh, in the Picts and the Breton time, like in ancient Ireland, there was no concept of sin. Like the Gales and the Brehan uh, tree-based laws, it seemed that uh, the pigs 
work through their issues and rights and have passages through council mediation and uh, through retribution was the way they solved things. Now, Christianity arriving as it was in Ireland, it changed all of this. And the thinking of this seems to be like the right-wing causes of today. In my mind, Christianity attracted men and encouraged the men to hold more power. And like today, this created division from the feminine network of their culture because the men were forcing a change to the feminine role in their whole culture, not just the women themselves, but the attitude to the Mother Earth. Suddenly there was this God in the sky and men became attracted to the fear of generating powers of concepts of sin, which was being taught by the Christian uh, gospels and using that as a weapon a sort of a weapon control, I think, over femininity, over women. But having that said, it was, funnily enough, it was a woman abbess that first brought the strong influence of Christianity to the southern pigs. The northern pigs weren't having anything to do with this now. But her name was uh, Dudluk, Dulladuck, Dulladuck, that's it. I said, I've got a spelling here, Dulladuck. Uh, I'll, I'll bring her up and then we might be able to understand this a bit better. Uh, there was uh, the Abbess Daladuck. This was about 350 AD. So she was the first one. And funnily enough, she was from Ireland. Yeah, we hear about Patrick uh, uh, later on. And this is if that's got the ball rolling in Ireland, that he came over and converted the Irish. But there was this woman, this Abbess uh, Daladuck, who actually came from Ireland to tell the Gospels to the pits. Interesting. Um, so way before St. Patrick. However, it seemed uh, she didn't really have that major effect. It turned out it was uh, about the same time as Patrick, there was a St. Ninian, and this was around 400 AD-ish, and he is said to have converted many of the southern pits, but this converting quickly caused friction and division amongst the alliance of the pig tribes. There were a lot of the pig tribes that said, we're not having anything to do with this Christian stuff. And for many years, there were many tribes within the Picts culture who resisted the Christianity, especially the Northern Picts. They saw this divisioning going on in the South. They wanted to sustain their peace. They didn't want any part of that Christian culture. But along comes Colum Keel. There we go. The Colum Keel from Iona. This is where we get to the, the Owen bit. Here we go. Let's get him up. And uh, there's a story told about how Colum Keel he was on the way to having talks with the North King Pig, uh, King Brood. He was based in Inverness. And he noticed, as he was on the way there, Colin Kill, he noticed there was a, a monster uh, that was eating people. And this was actually in the River Ness. And there we go. There it is, a person that the monster is about to eat. And uh, now I, I said Ness River deliberately, and this is a... A section from the Lamb Peninsula called Loch End, which is there, if you see on the map. See to the north end, that's where the Loch Ness goes into the river. That's Loch Ness to the south, the river's to the north. And uh, there's a nice picture, that's a bit of the River Ness. And that goes all the way into Inverness. Anyway, uh, Colin Kill called the monster over to him and told him, stop eating people. There he is. Yeah, you know, please, don't eat people. It's not a very Christian thing to do. And uh, 
Well, the monster was actually enchanted by Colin Keel, and uh, he became shy. He got enchanted. Colin Keel's enchantment turned him from being a, a people-eating monster, <laughs> this is the story, into a shy monster and swam on to the south and went deep into the lock. There you go. There's the shy. Uh, someone got a picture of a very shy monster who's been very shy ever since. And, of course, as we know, the Loch Ness Monster has not been to any harm to anybody ever since. There is photography of it flapping away, enjoying itself, and our shy, harmless Loch Ness Monster. Now, when King Brood actually heard this, he thought, wow, there's, there's something in this Christian lark, because he knew of this monster eating people in the uh, River Ness. And so he thought, well, what? What Colin has got? Whoa, this is powerful stuff. And he wanted some of this. And so via uh, Colin Keel from Gaelic Island and the pig brood together, they, they set out to influence the northern pigs to actually become Christian, which is unfortunately, and this was a breakdown of the Pictish culture in a way, our change. And they converted them into a much more patriarchal ways of the uh, Christian movement. So uh, there we are, he's doing a lot of converting and getting all the lads along, becoming and getting them to be a lot more patriarchal there. But as you can imagine, uh, though the Gales had merged with the Picts, this new Christian culture, it just increased their unrest. And the culture had changed from being guided by circular councils that were overseen by goddesses. There's a goddess maybe overseeing a council. And suddenly evolved into this God in, uh, God in the sky. Um, and these circles became replaced by elitist linear courts who forced judgment and uh, they forced peace. It wasn't a natural culture thing. It was judgment to bring about fear, to bring about the peace that was commanded by the male God in the sky. And sometimes I talk of being and yang in plant growth. Uh, in sessions, the feminine dark network of the roots, fungi, and life forms that share the dark underworld, and this being balanced by the highly competitive yang individual male style fighting for the light in the upper world. But that's what balances plants, and that's how we get yields. It seems like the ancient pick ways and now the modern Christian ways were something a bit like that, I think. So you've got the, the pick goddess against the Christian. Lad in the sky. It's a shame about the sin, isn't it? Anyway, uh, what was needed uh, was this alliance. This whole alliance was still needed between the Gales and the Picts, not uh, whether it's Christian or not. They still had to settle their differences and get together as a very united force because they were needed to push away these lads. There we go. Yeah, the Vikings, which was much bigger than... The Picts, much bigger than the Gales. Picts and Gales had to come together against this uh, force. So this Picts-Gales merger did open the formation of a new country of Alba, which eventually took on the name that came from Ireland, Scotia, to became Scotland. And this happened when this lad came along, um, Kenneth McAlpin. This was, we're now up to about 843. Uh, he was probably the last Picts king, but uh, he was Gaelic speaking 
Although he was picked, he was Gaelic speaking, he was Christian, he'd taken on the, uh, the whole Christian culture, and, uh, and so it was his reign, unfortunately, that washed away what remained of the Pict culture, the Pict language, and the merging of Picts and Gaels was complete. Uh, now, a few hundred years after the ninth century, as I say, under ninth century complete, but soon after the Viking culture took it all over, the scribe culture had been around for 300 years. Uh, so how the ancient Scotia, Scoti name remained as the name for Scotland is, uh, that's a mystery to me, because here you've got the Vikings, you've got the Picts, uh, and you got a little bit of the Gales, but somehow the Gales managed to enforce the Scotty name. Uh, fascinating honor of how uh, they did it. Anyway, I've, I've been rattling on. Let's see what you have to say about that. I hope this is making some sort of sense. This is a whole new thing for me. Yeah, uh, the equal society. Yeah, we're getting more. Uh, it's very much in the folklore, very much in the stories about the equal society because. That's what people long for today. It's what people have tried to work towards today. So people, again, look to the stories, look to the ancient references. Did this once exist? Because if it, it's like the tree thing. If it exists, then it's in our roots. And we need to feed from our roots where there is this network. And this is how we ideally want to be above the ground. So I think it's a great reference. It started off as a folklore, but I think from things that are being discovered and analyzed and looked at, it's actually starting to get archived into the history as well that this happened. Uh, the leaders, yeah, the leaders were still men. I'm going to talk about this a bit when we uh, get on to Bridget's traditions. Uh, that, um, and it's funny when we say leaders, um, we think leaders today are people that take control people that suppress people. And so it seems horrific that you have men in a leadership king, imperial position, say, and they're there to, uh, to bring about control on the situation, even uh, in Republican governments. It's mainly men, very few women there, and it seems to be control. My only interpretation is that the men were brought as leaders because, uh, how can I put it, it's like that proverb, and it's sort of from China and from the East, that beside every successful man is a good woman, that a man wouldn't be able to lead without that guidance from the women. When men got into a circle, this is in Irish folklore, that when men had these circle together with the brown laws and in the pigs it looks like both men and women were together they would burn the rowan and the idea of burning the rowan before they would hold court is to actually bring the presence of the female around them because if it's just a bunch of men around they get revengeful they get angry they get pissed off it's as if they need the women for the inspiration for the calm for the direction so in a way the they, they definitely blessed the women of the earth, recognized the womb, uh, they recognized that everything was umbilically connected. But uh, I suppose if you take the Mars and Venus sort of thing, if you look at the uh, go into the astrology, 
The Mars is about direction. When there's actually a decision, it seems to be very much a, a decision seems to be a, a masculine kind of reaction. But you're not going to have a decision unless there is a unity. That's the way I interpret it. That might seem complex. But I think leadership, it was more chieftaining, was a very different kind of thing. Uh, that, in a way, is a whole topic in itself. And if anybody wants to debate that in a panel shortly, come on board. Um, Alicia, loving this part. Great. We've got a lot more to come. I am running late. Uh, Betty uh, from Germany. And lovely to see uh, Emmy. And uh, I think I'll call you up now. Uh, and again, I thank you so much for all being here. I'll be answering comments afterwards. But um, what do the scribes make of all this? So we're talking about now the Vikings have come in. You've got the Viking influence. You've got the Gales, the Picts. You've all got this pulled together uh, as a culture. The Orm is still there, but the scribes, they're uh, writing stuff in a linear form. So there we go. What did the scribes? There's scri another scribe picture. It really is. When scribing got going, it was a very popular and lucrative industry. It was very much like home computers today. Um, it wasn't that lucrative until Conkill came along, really. Uh, and stories of uh, Bridget Kildare, as I'm going to be talking about years before Conkill, uh, the stories with her, I'm, not, I'm going to be very brief because I'm going to talk about this more next week. But though she was a founder, of femininity in many ways uh, and uh, bringing a, a kind of a wonderful position for the femininity of the earth. She was really inclusive of what we might say, the pagan ways, the mother earth, but trying to give a, a Christian slant on this. When it came to scribing, it said that the scriptorians, that she only allowed men to be the scribes. Anyway, talk about that next week. Uh, and this was several years before Colin Keel. Uh, but before her, there was Patrick and other monastic founders. And they seemed to be very learned in Latin. Uh, they'd learned from the Romans. They were from Roman families, I think, most of them. Uh, and they really ex expected that being learned in Latin, that they would scribe records like the Romans did. But maybe they were slow at learning the Gaelic, uh, learning the Gaelic. Uh, Latin wouldn't have been understood in Ireland and where they roamed. Uh, so maybe they didn't see any sense in the archiving. I don't know. It's a mystery, but it's not known. But it was Colin Keel who set up scriptoriums, uh, starting with Dorrow and Derry. And that seemed to get this whole scriptorium movement going because home computers, for instance, came into our homes in the early 80s. But there were computers around in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But people didn't understand them. They couldn't come into the homes because if they did, people wouldn't know. They wouldn't even know how to spell QWERTY. I know with my first computer, it took me two weeks to learn how to get QWERTY up on the screen. I think a lot of us were like that. And that's the early 80s. So I think uh, scriptoriums were like this in a way. When printing came in, when the first letterpress printing presses came, people hadn't got a clue what was going on. But at uh, the turn of the 1900s, people had little printing presses in their garden sheds, literally. So it's the same thing. And I think Colin Keel was the one who really brought out um, 
scriptoriums and it was a bit like when Microsoft set up an Apple and all these, the scriptoriums under Colin Keel was like the Microsoft or the Apple of the time. And it was going to be very profound. And he was launching this from Iona. And this is where we bring it in. They're a great reference for them. If it come up, there we go, was the OM. The OM engravings uh, that uh, was from the Picts. And then you've got this tree language that was oral from the Gales. And even the Norse people had some kind of mixture of the two that they could bring in. And I think it would have been absolutely amazing uh, inspiration for these scribes uh, to add them to the Gospels. Uh, they were adding to the Gospels. I'm trying to get this stone up. Adding to the Gospels and the Psalms that they were scribing. Uh, they've got all these uh, symbols. Scribes were developing and teaching a linear language. But the oral people that they learned from, they, they didn't know anything about the linear. The whole thing, it's like sin. You know, the sin was brought in by the Christians. What the heck is sin? They didn't know the concept. And so these oral people didn't really have the concept of linear. They didn't understand starts and finishes, beginnings and ends. Everything was in a cycle because they understood the seasons went round in a circle. They looked into the trees and saw the cut trees and saw the circles. To them, that's how the world and that's how everything moved. But there you got this whole linear thing. It must have been really completely foreign. And how did these scribes who had learned linear through their Christian understanding, Middle Eastern understanding, how could they translate circle and spherical into uh, what they were trying to scribe? So that was their main challenge. A bit like the computer people. How do you turn analog into digital? Similar idea, I think. So they went through this phase, and it's amazing how digital is trying to impersonate uh, analog since, isn't it? Um, so you've got, uh, there you go, oh, let's just stay up, there we go. Uh, Orm was written and read from the ground up, that wasn't linear. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry about this uh, erratic uh, pictures anyway. And here's, a, I'll, I'll show you this one, this might show you. There we go, you read that from the ground up, and isn't that a bit like a tree growing? And this, I told you, talk, going back to this leadership thing uh, with the feminine, the feminine in the ground, leadership at the top. You get the inspiration from the ground, from the, uh, I, I love using the word energy, but literally the energy inspiration from the ground upwards. And to me, that's what the orb speaks. You're going up the tree. The sap's going up the tree. Uh, in mythology, you've got the she, you've got the fairies who come from the ground up through the water up through the tree, and there you've got the language, and that to me is the tree language, and that's what they understood. Stuff of life doesn't go from left to right or right to left, but that was the convenience, that's what the scribes were doing. Um, I think I've got that one. So translating all that into linear must have been a nightmare. How did they do it? There must have been a lot. I, I think I know what they're doing. I've got these. I know how to do these letters. Oh, I'll just do it this way. So. Translation must have been very, very inaccurate. And then there was a recognition of the pick symbol language. And there we go. Uh, we talked about that, some of it being like the Orm. And maybe the Picts tried out Gallic Orm to add to their own. And I talked about this a bit earlier, because uh, this to me is a, 
the image of the Bramsbud Stone where you've got the, the Gaelic um, meeting uh, the uh, Pict language, Pict's adapting it, he got her a bit of emergence. Bit of a reminder bringing that one up for you. But Columkeel scribing was 6th century, and then by the 9th century, 300 years later, this was really, uh, scribing was really advancing. They learned different inks, different ways of scribing. They had more of the Viking influence and the imagery, and then we get this stuff. This is how the scribing ended up. And it brings it all together. And somewhere in there is the origin of Oum. Though we don't see it, uh, it's quite incredible. Let's get a, another one of this. this is not, I think this shows it up. There we go. If you go to the Book of Kells, this is what we're getting. And the pit culture and language fully merged into the Gaelic language. And this was all becoming the culture of Alba, which was coming on to um, Scotland. So where did all this Oum go? The Owen inscriptions were no longer uh, directives, and I do believe, and we cover this in other going sessions. They, I'm, let's go back to this to explain this. There we go. As so I was talking about the inspiration from the earth coming up through the trees. So I think the Owen was very much a divination tool at that time. It's what inspired. There wasn't linear language. There was just the uh, spiral understanding. Um, but so no longer were these own languages, own, own symbols being used as directives of inspiration. To me, they were now creating tools. Owen was used to create tools of order and doctrine, which is what Christianity was bringing in, the idea of order and doctrine. So I've had a session on this. Owen was being used merely as what I call pissing stones as I mentioned in another Sunday session. And they all was being used to mark boundaries with names. Do not cross over here. And there's a cat on this worn-out home one there. Do not cross here. This is the boundary of our people, of our family, of our tribe. This was almost, almost uh, become a weapon. And uh, it changed from being a, a tree guide of the mother culture of the gales and pigs. And... Uh, become a divisionary boundary tool uh, of the new Christian path of the world, almost very weaponry in, uh, from divination into being a commanding slave. This is our land, keep off. And that's where I think Ohm stayed. And Ohm was used on posts, on boundary posts, up until the 1930s in parts of Northern Ireland, north of Ireland, certainly in Scotland. So a lot of our mystery has been picked up. Um, it was used for boundaries, but there was a revival in modern Oum when we're looking, you know, what is this Oum stuff? And what people are looking heavily into, and we have a session on this, I've done this, is the book of Ballymort. And this is a late medieval book, and these are a couple of pages. And then we see the Oum has been put into a linear form uh, by the scribe there. And... Uh, but, of course, when people get to this page, uh, the pagans, the mystics, the modern pagans, they look at that and say, oh, yes, we knew this all along. So that sort of speaks to them. And maybe and that shows the circles and the cycles that it's related to. So there was some preservation of perhaps the own old own ways. And this was novel, I think, at the time of uh, doing the book of Ballymote. 
But I present this as, as to say in another Sunday session. Uh, breathing traditions next Sunday session is next week. I'm going to be, you know, I've I've gone some through a bit of dark stuff. I think uh, just now. So we'll have some uh, more cheerful stuff next week. I uh, just want to see what you. Uh, uh, let's see what you're saying here. I'm glad you're enjoying this talk. As I say, it's out of line with the way I perhaps cover this. Uh, so I've struggled with it. I hope you have understood that. Sophie from Wales, Somerset. Always wondered why the omens develop separately from runes. Are they related? Uh, if you uh, hopefully, when you check back um, from the beginning, because this will be archived. Uh, this, I think you've covered, you've summed up this entire hour or so, really, just from your one comment. And I think this is the whole idea that the, the Pictish language that they put perhaps with their axe blades uh, and would draw out uh, certainly with metal because they were iron people. One thing about the Pictish people is they were way ahead with iron and uh, they... Uh, they chopped down the trees, all these trees that they were chopping down for the farming made charcoal, made iron. And uh, so they would have blades to cut this stuff out. So there they were, they were stuck on the symbolic language. They never had a linear language, whereas uh, the orm was the thing that seemed to feed into the linear. Orm was from the tree language, as I saying, from the earth upwards. And through the emergence of the Picks and the Gales, somehow that two type of symbolism came together, that it may be the uh, Gales learned how to use blades to cut out their tree language. And that's how the Oum alphabet came about as lines, because they learned from the Picts, oh, this is something we can do. So yes, I think there's an emergence. There might not have been an Oum that we know today if it wasn't for the Picts showing how to cut out stone and wood with stuff made, blades made out of iron. I think that's where the emergence came. It was the iron that perhaps first influenced the emergence because they were of use to each other. There were the gales, the tree people. There were the um, farmers, uh, the picks, but they needed tools. They needed wood to make charcoal, charcoal to make tools. So there's all these things you can think of people learning, tribes learning from each other. And uh, that's how I see the emergence. So that's my long answer to that one. Who we got here? Sophie from Wells. We love you. And of course, Donna loves the kitty on the stone. Of course, I, I especially put that in there for you. Of course, uh, Donna, fascinating. I've been mixed up about this. I hope I didn't mix you up even more because we're still not uh, very clear about it, are we? Oiling Rowan. I didn't say boiling rowan, burning rowan. It might be the way I pronounced it. Sorry about Lishka. It's about burning rowan uh, uh, to get the essence of the rowan uh, and because you would have a fire in the middle of the circle, much like uh, we would have uh, smudging. It was a, it's a form of smudging with the rowan to bring the presence of the female spirit. So sorry if I misunderstood with that one. And... Uh, Stephen, thanks uh, that you enjoyed. it. got a lot more people through YouTube today. Thank you. Uh, sorry, just joined. Check back. Definitely uh, try and see how I fumble through this. I hope you find it more, much more interesting uh, than perhaps the last bit that you've heard. 
It's been fun, actually, though I've uh, fumbled and uh, the computer has been sluggish and I haven't had the transitions. Um, but uh, nobody's turned up wanting to do some paneling. We're going to have guests on next week. It's going to be less of me, more of guests presenting the British traditions, uh, breeder traditions, and uh, we'll have a panel then. So it's just me today. Uh, anyway, I go on to the uh, formal stuff. Of, uh, I am still trying hard to work on this um, creating the she water and tree folklore course uh, to take these subjects a lot further. And I, these sessions and the labyrinth gardens now are kind of free, uh, but they have expenses. So I invite you to subscribe here. A lot of you are subscribers. And thank you very much. There we are. There's the Patreon subscribing. Uh, this does help because uh, in order to present pictures and the things I do uh, through Facebook Live and through YouTube and through Twitter, I uh, have to do this through subscriptions and have to pay bits. And there's other uh, subscriptions just to keep the ball rolling. And there's the upkeep of the Labyrinth Garden. So this all helps. And as a thank you, I can get all the people subscribing get this course because I'm not going to charge a course fee. It's going to be forever developing. You'll get the videos. You'll get uh, the podcast. We'll come together on little Zoom meetings to take this further. There's going to be a lot going on. So subscribe. There you go. That's the Patreon page there. Just a euro, dollar, pound a month or more. And the links are all over the Karakori Cottage website. Um, so I thank you for your support to enable me to, and, and Claire as well to continue and share these projects. Uh, and I'll be given some assignment, assignments for you to do. And I'll message you to keep you up to date when you become a subscriber. Uh, so coming up in the next Sunday sessions, getting back to my pictures, if they work, let's tell you what's coming up now. Uh, next week, as I say, we've got the breeder. Uh, get a nice breeder picture up. There's some familiarity there. Breeder tales and traditions. And, and please join in with this. I hope to not be saying too much. A lot of the traditions you already know. Let's talk about them. Let's share them. Let's have a fun time next week. 31st of January. That's next Sunday. That's the eve of Bridges. So you can get your um, breed brats uh, prepared, your crosses sorted. We'll talk about all that next Sunday. And then similar is the 7th of February when I go on to... This is going on to the sidereal time, as I'm often talking about, the British day is really going with the Gregorian time, the more modern dating. But we'll go to Imbolc traditions uh, on the 7th. It's actually Imbolc on the 3rd, but this is the next Sunday afterwards. So that's when we'll do that. And we'll do that uh, with you speaking more than me. And then the 14th of February, as the same, February is going to be all about water. Uh, because there's a different breeder. We're going to be talking a lot about fire, including the uh, Rowan I was talking about and the Hawthorne, bringing that up. It's going to be a lot fire-related. Imbolc is going to be very water-related, and the rest of the month of February is going to be very water-related. So on the 14th of February, going into water dragons, serpents, and snakes, very much a folklore thing there. So uh, let's uh, have a look uh, to see what you're saying here. Thank you, Marcella. Thank you for being around. Thank you, Lishka. Thank you, everybody. 
It's been a delight you've been around. I hope it made sense. Um, uh, uh, very different, uh, not having the guests, just me. So I, a lot of you will be now watching this as an archive. So keep commenting here uh, as you're watching this because I keep coming back and answer the comments uh, in the archive. Subscribe, click the bell icons you see on YouTube and Facebook. That will remind you of details of next Sunday session that's coming up. Uh, enjoy a safe week. Uh, keep it uh, full of wonder. And uh, right to the end, the computer's playing up. And <laughs> uh, uh, I'm holding on here. Uh, I wish you a safe week. Wonder, lots of wonder, lots of inspiration. We're coming up to the spring when the snow's melted here. It's going to get a little milder and wetter. Enjoy the enchantments that you see around you and feel around you. And uh, until next Sunday, just play well. Uh, love you all. And uh, here we go. Bye-bye.